Today is the last lesson in our Messy Church series. Uh, It has been a kind of a quick whirlwind here over the last seven weeks. Uh, And we have been looking at the church in Corinth. Let me move this out of the way here. Don't want to... I hit the music stand enough. I don't want something up here to hit with my hands. Uh, We have been looking at the church in Corinth and examining uh, the many issues that they had to navigate at a time when Christianity was not only new to them, but it was new to the world. And the problem, if we were, that they had, like the main problem they had, if we were to sort of, you know, put it in a nutshell, is that they didn't know how to live as followers of Jesus. Um, They wanted then to continue to live as Corinthians while reaping the benefits of being a Christian. And while it's easy for us to look down our noses at them, the thing that we have to remember is that they were just learning how to do this. And so Paul had to remind them in this letter over and over again that if they were going to live like Jesus, then they could not live like everyone else in the world around them. That there is a remarkable difference between those who follow Jesus and those who do not. And what's funny, and I don't know if maybe you've seen this underlying thread if you've been here for most of these sermons, um, in this case, there actually is a solution to their problems. I, I know it's, you know, we often look for, uh, you know, the magic bullet, and in this case, there actually is one. If they are able to integrate one thing into their community, it will make all the difference in the world. And no, it's not hot coffee at the back, all right? So as we wrap up this study this morning, we are going to look at one of the most famous, well-known, and most read passages in the entire Bible. And that passage is one chapter. It is 1 Corinthians chapter, anyone know? 13. That's right. The love chapter. Now, why is it so well-known? Well, because it's been used in about 85% of weddings since the beginning of time. Um, Do I use it in the wedding ceremonies I perform? Yes. Yes, I do. It's part of the contract once you become a pastor that you have to use 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in any sort of wedding ceremony that you do. One of the reasons why it is so well known, besides just being used in all these cases, is that um, it, it gives us one of the better descriptions of love that we have in the Bible. We have a lot of sort of like one-off descriptions of love. Greater love has no one than this. They lay down their life for our friend. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ died for us. We have a lot of those sorts of things. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, Paul spells out in really clear language what love really looks like, and he describes it for us. And more than just one sentence and more than just a one-off, he tells us about the attributes of love. Now, you know my rules. Those of you who have been around or to my classes or to uh, some of the small groups that I've led, my rules when it comes to studying Scripture. And that is, we have to look at what is before and what is after in order to better understand what the chapter is telling us about. And I will wager a guess 
that while we have taken great value out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have missed something imperative within this chapter. So in chapter 12, Paul discusses spiritual gifts. The church was arguing over which spiritual gifts were from God. There was jealousy over the gifts that people did not have, and they were judging their own gifts or judging others' gifts based on what they had. Um, and, and the spiritual gift that you had to some degree determined your spiritual status within the church. And the church itself had determined that the gift of tongues was the greatest gift that one could have. It was a language that God was giving you to speak that no one else could understand, which made you the most special of everyone within the church. Paul reminded them that all the different gifts they have are from the same Spirit. And furthermore, they are gifted differently for a reason. They make up the body of Christ, and a body needs all of its parts. It doesn't need a hundred of the same part. It needs all of the parts. And I would invite you to think for a moment about your foot. Because uh, Paul uses this example of a foot, but I want you to think about the foot itself. We know what the foot does. We stand on it. We walk on it. It helps us move, right? It supports our body. But do you know what the foot desperately needs? The toes. In particular, it needs the big toe and the pinky toe. Why? Because the foot itself cannot balance without a big, ugly toe and a little itty-bitty small one that seems to move to have no purpose. Right? It keeps you from going this way or going this way. You need those toes. In chapter 14, Paul describes for us how this issue of spiritual gifts was playing out very practically within the church. I'm sorry, chapter 14. Did I say 14? Okay, good. I thought I said 15 there for a second. People were misusing their spiritual gifts to the benefit of themselves instead of the community. And again, the gift of speaking in tongues was a special concern. It was often being used in the assembly by the individual who had the gift without any sort of translation. And when this happened, the gift of tongues had no benefit to the community and only served the purpose of making this particular individual seem special. But that was not all that was happening. It's not like the speaking in tongue group was the only group that was at fault. In particular, everyone was fighting and speaking over one another so that they could get their special word from God out to the church. And he gives a, a specific example. He says, one of you is up prophesying. And you are saying all the things that God has told you to say, but a new word from God comes to someone else in the church. And they stand up to say what God has said to them. But you don't stop talking. You keep prophesying while they are starting to prophesy. And how many times can this happen within the same group? I mean, as many times as they wanted to right? But I wasn't done saying my important thing. 
Shouldn't I finish saying my important thing before you just butt in on my important time? It's not hard to understand how this could create lots of different problems. So in short, spiritual gifts were not only being used as a status symbol within the community, but they were being used as weapons against one another. Oh, you have the spirit of knowledge. (laughs) Prove it. Would you like to hear me speak in tongues? Would you like to hear me prophesy about what God is doing? It's worth noting that the problems of which Paul wrote were things happening, though, within the church itself. Have you considered this? Paul is writing only to the church, only about things that are happening in the church. He's not even dealing with what happens outside of that group of people. So this entire mess, all of it, belongs to a group of Christians. It does not belong to anyone else. They did this all on their own. It is a messy church indeed. The fighting over spiritual gifts, the quest for self-importance, and the disrespect of others was not building up the body of Christ. It was ripping it apart. And it is into this context, this context, That Paul wrote chapter 13, right between 12 and 14. So do we have to believe that it's there on purpose? Yeah, we kind of should believe it's there on purpose, that this wasn't an accident. Well, how much does this matter? I mean, chapter 13 is such a great chapter on its own. It tells us so much Does it matter? Like, can't we just just pull it out and let it speak to us as it does? Well, sure. You know, any, any part of the Bible works in and of its own. But there's a difference here because a lot of times when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 by its own, it presents to us an idealistic form of love. It it presents to us a love that we would aspire to or hope to have, or try to get close enough to, which is valuable, I suppose, in and of itself. But if you put it in between 12 and 14, you see that what Paul is talking about in 13 is not something to aspire to. It's something to use immediately within a community that is not doing these things. So this isn't some sort of pie-in-the-sky description of love. This is a description of love that Paul expects them to enact immediately within the community. So let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, 
that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Do you see it now? What Paul is speaking about? What is the answer to the problem that the Corinthians are having with using spiritual gifts in their community? He's about to tell them, but his assertion is plain from the jump. Whatever you do for God does not matter if you are motivated by anything but love. What you do for God does not matter if you are motivated by anything but love. Why? Because love is the reason. It's the reason you call yourselves Christians. It's the reason why you have spiritual gifts in the first place. Love is the only reason. Let's put this into a broader context. Why did God create the world according to the Bible? Why did he stick with people who rejected him over and over again? Why did Jesus come here to die for us? Why does God provide a way to eternal life? The reason behind all of these things is what? It is love. And you can try to add whatever you like into the relationship between God and his people, but the final answer is already love. And from God's side of the equation, it is love that is the skeleton to the body he is creating. It is what holds everything in place. And without that, you become a blob of flesh on the ground. Love is what gives God his actions in this world shape and form. It is the heart of who he is. There is no body of Christ without Christ. And what does Christ represent according to the writings of Paul? He represents the truest the truest knowledge of love we can ever have. He is the example of what love could look like in the world. And he is the walking, talking, touching example of how reckless the love of God actually is. And you are his body. Therefore, if your gift is used in any way that benefits you instead of the body of Christ, then you are nothing more than something that makes noise. All of the great things you know don't amount to anything if you do not know and communicate the love of God that lies at the heart of who he is and his actions in this world. And if you do so, communicate it without that, then you, with all your knowledge, are nothing. You 
or nothing. And all of the great sacrificial things you do, wonderful as they may be, carry no currency with God if you are not doing it because you love him and you love the people that he loves. Is this a harsh declaration? No, it's not. It is simply true. Paul did not need to spare their feelings. He needed them to understand that at the heart of all of these things they have labeled are the God things. My gifts, my knowledge, my wisdom, my giving everything up, my sacrificing my body, that all of these things do not matter. If love is not the reason behind them. Go ahead, hit your head up against the wall over and over again. Good for you. Where is the love of God in that? If you are doing any of these things without love, here's the bottom line, and this is the hardest, probably the hardest pill for them to swallow. If you are doing any of these things without love, then they in fact are not gifts from God. This is you glorifying yourself. And God has nothing to do with you glorifying yourself. And therefore, if they're not from God, they are nothing. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I don't know about you, but I see this differently, putting it into the context it was actually written in, right? Because they were not doing these things. They were using the gifts of God against one another to elevate themselves. And therefore, when we read words like love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonest others. How cutting these words had to have been to people who, have, who had made the community of God about these things about being envious, about boasting, about being proud, about dishonoring others so that they could be in a higher position. And what Paul is basically trying to tell them is like, you can't just say, well, yeah, you know, I'm doing this out of the love of God because you cannot fake your way through love. You can't do it. It's not possible. You can't pretend to love because if you do, you will show yourself as being fake every time. It will happen. You will be revealed. 
The love that Paul writes about here is intentional. It says, I am going to love the body of Christ. I am going to love others in a way where I put them above me, in front of me, where none of this is actually about me, and therefore the love of God is rooted in the fact that in order to do it, it costs you something. It's not easy to put others in front of you all the time. I mean, one of our base human desires is that when we do something really good for other people, we want recognition, thanks, some sort of demonstration of how good we just were to them. If the heavens opened up and God said, this is my child of whom I am well pleased, we wouldn't be against that. (laughs) That'd be okay, wouldn't it? But what is love if it doesn't cost you anything? It's not love. It's not love. And if it's not love, then, then what is it? If you're saying that love is there, but it doesn't cost you anything, then what is it? It is a relationship that benefits you. That's what it is. And when that benefit runs out, will you have time for it anymore? If love is absent, if sacrifice is absent, is giving is absent, then no, you won't. And the problem is, guys, this is how they lived in community with one another. The gifts of God were used to elevate the self and to take away from others. And Paul is very clear that under these conditions, the gifts don't mean anything. And furthermore, If this is what you are doing for God, it does not result in love for his body and everyone that is a part of it. It only results in exalting you. And so every one of the things that Paul lists here are sacrificial expressions of love. They require you to put yourself aside for the sake of others. You have to risk yourself in order to love this way. You have to be willing to put yourself aside in order to love this way. You have to be willing to give up everything you deserve and should have in order to love this way. You have to make yourself nothing in order to love this way. And perhaps the hardest thing, you have to love doing it. And if you think for one moment that this is too much, that it is more than what is possible, that it's some sort of hypothetical, pie-in-the-sky version of love, then you clearly have not spent enough time with Jesus. The Son of God, who deserved what? Everything. And made himself nothing. 
within the body of Christ and the kingdom of God, your value never comes at the cost of someone else. Never. Instead, you demonstrate that you are in the kingdom of God by putting yourself below others, gladly, lovingly, so that they might be built up and lifted up before God, and that they might come to know Him better because you are loving them in the way that you do. Verses 8 through 12. Love never fails. <laughs> Isn't that interesting now within that whole thing? Love never fails. I'm not sure this is the best way to do things, you know? I'm not sure I can handle what this is going to cost me. I don't know if it's worth it. If you do this the way that God has designed for you to, it does not fail you. Because guess what? This isn't really about you in the first place. We'll, we'll circle back around to that here in a minute. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Everything that you think is so important. Your gifts from God, the things that you are doing for him, all of those things that you have made the end-all, be-all of what being a Christian is about, they are all going to end. You know what will last, right? There was a time in your life where it was really important for you to have all the things. You spent time around toddlers. What are they like? They want all the things. They don't want you to have all the things. You are simply the supplier of the things. And your job is to deliver those things. When you were a child, what you most cared about was your next need and how that need would be fulfilled. But as you got older, you came to understand that there was more to the world than just your needs being met. So grow up and understand that God has more going on in the world than glorifying you. 
God has more going on in the world than making sure that you feel good about yourself. God has more going on, the wor- on in the world than giving you the ability to say, well, at least I'm not like them. Grow up and know that as much as you might be blessed with something right now, it's not even, it's not even the appetizer to the meal that's in front of you. It, it, it pales in comparison to what God actually has planned for you and for the people that he loves. You have such a long way to go. But what you will find, who you will become, will outshine anything you had to go through to get there. Everything about now pales in comparison, is nothing in comparison to what God actually has for you. And so you can choose. You can put all of your time and energy into the things that have an expiration date. Or you can put all of your time and energy into a God who puts so much time and energy into you. And you can step back for a second from the world that revolves around your noodle and see that God didn't just do this for you. He did this for all these people. And guess what? They can't go change the world until they get over themselves. Again, this is not even about the impact they can have on those who don't yet know Jesus. It's a little bit shocking, isn't it? That these are the lessons they had to learn. But look at how he ends this. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully what? Even as I am fully known. Why is that an important thought toward the end of this chapter? It's important for them because it reminds them that yes, you are to put yourself aside. Yes, you are to put others. Yes, before you, yes, you are to glorify God about other things. But the end result of this is that you will know the love of God and you will be fully known. You see, God's love for you doesn't stop here either. You haven't discovered the fullness of God's love. But there's a time that's coming where you will know. And what will drive that home to you is how much 
God knows you and loves you in return. So he ends this in verse 13 saying, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now why does he mention faith and hope within this context? Are they important? Absolutely. They are absolutely important. Are they powerful? Yeah, they are. They are. But is this really about your powerful faith? Or, or is it really about your ability to hold on to the hope that God has put before you, which is a great, great hope? No, no. Because the greatest of all things is, and it is what makes all of this happen. Faith, hope, do not happen without love. They do not exist in this way without love. And it occurs to me that we could look back on every single problem the Corinthian church had. And in every single problem they had, there was a deficit of one major thing. There was a deficit, an absence of love. There was an abundance of other things, but there was an absence of love. So how do they move forward? How do they change what they have become? How do they better represent Jesus Christ on this earth? They love. They love. In a sacrificial, self-giving sort of way, they love him, God, and they love others. Now, what do we do with all of this information? It's a great question. I could just say, well, let's love and we can all leave. But just give me a, a couple more minutes here to, to say some things that I think are important because, truthfully, I believe that we are a church that loves each other pretty well. Um, we haven't perfected love by any means. We still struggle with different things at different times. But I want to say that I have seen you live out the characteristics of love that Paul described in this chapter with one another. And I've also heard about how you struggle with it, but I have seen you struggle with the desire to love more like what Paul describes. But I am convicted at the same time of how loving others is a struggle we will always encounter. That we can't do it by accident. That there are going to be moments and times where we will have to truly evaluate whether we are loving other people, both inside these walls and out, in the way that Jesus is calling us to. So let's consider this morning 
how the love of God manifests itself in the world that is outside these walls. Um, I lost someone very dear to me this week. Uh, Landon Saunders, who I am named after, who my brother is also named after, passed away this week. And some of you may be familiar with him. He started out as a preacher, but his real work involved communicating the love of Jesus to people outside of the church. Not necessarily with the aim of getting them to church, but with the aim of helping them understand the great love of God. This ministry that he created was called Heartbeat. And for a long period of time, Heartbeat was one of the most impactful, certainly for Churches of Christ, ministries that we had. For many years, he hosted a short-form radio program that was heard by millions worldwide on the NBC, CBS, and Armed Forces radio network. You could tune in at the same time every week and hear his four minutes about something he wanted you to consider this week. It was even on the rock station in San Francisco. His goal of these sessions was to make sure that people felt known, seen, valued, and loved by God. Now, I knew him through my father. Um, I know my father because he's my dad. Uh, He and Landon were roommates for a year in college at Harding, and they were lifelong friends. Landon had an extraordinary ability to make... um, anyone, everyone comfortable around him. He was an imposing figure. He was about, I think he was 6'3", 6'4". He's a tall dude. And he had a powerful manner when he was preaching. But when you spoke to him, it was like, and this is not an exaggeration, it was like you were the only person in the world, even if you were in a crowd of hundreds. Here's why I bring him up to you today. When he started as a preacher, he quickly became disillusioned with the church, which at that time, I mean, he he died this year at the age of, um, what would he have been? 86. He died at the age of 86. Um, So that was a long time ago, right? When he was growing up and becoming a preacher within the church. But he was becoming disillusioned with what the church was. And what he was so frustrated with is the church did a lot for the people within its walls and did not nearly enough for the people outside of the walls. And and he saw a church that did not take the time, the energy, or the effort to see the individual who was not a part of it. He saw the church growing more insular, moving further away from the world in which it it lived. And I meant to put this on the screen. I'm sorry I didn't. But this is what he said. It couldn't just be about religion, and it certainly couldn't be about a religion that kept isolating itself further and further from humanity, from a world that religion said God loved. And when you are at a place where there's anything in your heart that excludes that could exclude another human being, you can always find some verse of Scripture to justify that. 
We believe that religion has to take some sort of controversial view about human beings and make some kind of decision or some kind of judgment about them before we can welcome them. And that struck me as contrary to everything that I could see in the person that we call Jesus. These thoughts have been weighing heavily on my heart long before I heard Lanham express them, although he did a much better job of expressing them than I could have. And what I see today is a church that is not only pulling away from the world we live in, it actively communicates and considers the world to be its enemy. That those outside the walls of the church are our enemy. And because they are our enemy, they are to be defeated and crushed so that we can reclaim this country for God. And that troubles me. It troubles me with how this indirectly and sometimes directly says that we can be consumed with how to get these people away from us while being so dismissive of their need to encounter the love of God. Is God's love so reckless that it only counts for you? Does it not move past us? Paul spends a lot of time in his letters trying to convince people of what they think they know about living for Jesus and, and what they are in fact doing and how those things are not an embodiment of who Jesus is to this world. And Paul works over and over again. He works hard to return them to the heart of God. And do you know where he got that from? He got that from Jesus. It was Jesus who loved all of those that the leader of God's people had rejected and raged against. He raged against those who dared to withhold the love of God from others that they deemed to be unworthy. And in the mind of Jesus, this was the worst thing that one could do. Hoard the love of God as if it were only big enough to cover a few. There's two things I want to say about this as we close. Number one, God is not going to be defeated by any power of this world. And when we act like he can be or he will be, we are making him a small God. Do you think that this is the first time in the history of the world that God has faced opposition? Do you think that this is the first time where the people of God have wondered where the world is going 
Are we so self-focused that we think the way we have it is worse and that in response to that, we have to defend God? Here's what I would suggest. We have it wrong when we look at the world as our enemy and consider it our job to defeat them. That is the way the world, in fact, thinks. That those who stand against others in the world are their enemy and they must be defeated. And when we act this way, we are not protecting God or protecting the church. Instead, we are holding on tightly to the love that God freely gives, deciding who has access and who doesn't. And unlike the parable of the sower, where the seeds go everywhere, we are picking and choosing our spots to plant one seed. But that was not the way that Jesus thought, and it was not the way that he lived his life. Jesus did not hoard the love of God. In fact, he was there to combat that idea that God did not love other people who were outside of this narrow, small definition of what it meant to be a person who belonged to God. He gave his love instead freely and recklessly to anyone who would hear that God loved them. And in fact, he loved people in such a way that he had to go in there and change their very understanding of what the love of God looked like. Because they believed that God could not love them. That God would not loved them. And they were told that there might never be a scenario in which they could be worthy of the love of God. Now, ironically, they were right, just not for the reasons they thought they were right. Because we know, don't we, that God loves those. Jesus died for those who were incapable of saving themselves. Don't we know that? And when we look at someone outside of this building as our enemy and treat them as if they cannot be here because they are this, or they are that, or the other, and they cannot come here until they change this or that or the other. We are not representing God. And we are nothing more than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You cannot change the world if you run from it. You cannot love those in the world if you refuse to be around them until they change. So perhaps like in Corinth, as it is here today in this world, in our country, it is not the people around us that needs to change, it is us. We need, perhaps, 
to be a little bit more reckless with the love that God has shown to us. Perhaps we need to be a lot more reckless with the love that God has shown to us. And I know that you can already feel the tension. You can already feel the ideas building up in your head. Well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what if they do this? Or what if they think that? I know. I know. But we're losing the thread there, folks. Because our viewing them in this way changes the way that we interact with them. And it changes our willingness or ability to love them in the way that Jesus loved us. Because don't people need to meet a God whose love overcomes everything? Don't they need that? Did you need that? Okay, then. How do we do this? What changes do we make? Well, as Paul told the church in Corinth, it doesn't change with what you do. As Paul has shown us oh so well, it changes from inside of you. That you would be willing to put the needs of someone that you don't understand and maybe even you're afraid of above your own so that they might know a God who loves them unlike anything they could ever experience here in this place.